0: Hello, my name is Eva, and I have, as many others, just watched the first season of House of the Dragon, and this is a spoiler review of episode 10 and the series as a whole. As I have mentioned in my previous reviews, I have thoroughly enjoyed this visual retelling of a well-crafted story. Today, I should like to hone in on two elements which draw me to any good story, characters and the progression of the story. Full disclosure, I highly appreciate the genre of fantasy, but for me personally, a person riding a dragon should reveal something about that person and how their life on Dragonback impacts this story. House of the Dragon has allowed me to enjoy dragon riding and the intermingling of intent and consequences as characters encounter challenging circumstances on or off Dragonback. In this latest episode, called The Black Queen, the news of Iseros' death is broken to Rhaenyra by the newly escaped Rhaenys. The revelation that Alicent's son, Aegon, is now crowned King of the Seven Kingdoms, causes a miscarriage for Rhaenyra. Daemon, her husband, Viserys' brother, shows his grief in the only way he knows how, by preparing for war. As conflict draws ever nearer, Rhaenyra sends her sons on missions across Westeros to secure alliances. As Jake makes his way to Winterfell, Luke is charged with delivering a message to Lord Baratheon at Storm's End. Luke, however, is sadly rebuffed, and at Storm's End, Luke meets his uncle, Aemond, and as Luke leaves, Aemond eventually causes Luke's death. As anyone who follows my podcasts will know. I love exploring art, whether it be literature or TV series, through the themes that come through. And one theme I really want to look at in this episode, as well as the whole series, is a theme I have touched on earlier called insistence on complexity. This last episode took place almost entirely on Dragonstone, while the previous episode took place in the Red Keep and King's Landing. Now, this was a storytelling choice that gave us as viewers the opportunity to immerse ourselves in the minutiae of political machinations following the death of Viserys. We have seen how people's ambitions, and not least their ethics, came to the fore. This two-part finale, as it were, last episode and this episode, did afford the showrunners the opportunity to stage scenes which have manipulated our emotions. In last week's episode, you might have ended up contemplating Prince Amon as the better choice for King, in contrast to his brother Egon. Yet in this episode, our emotions are once again cast adrift in a storm as we witness Amon if not directly kill, then certainly cause the death of his nephew. It is a testament to the character writing and not least the acting that this does not come across as inconsistent storytelling, but rather highlights the complexity of the character. I believe that some have had a similar emotional shipwreck when it came to Damon. Some viewers had already started to warm to him after his wedding with Rhaenyra and they are now forced to return to their doubts about him following that harrowing scene with him choking his wife. For me, and I stress that this is my subjective personal perspective, it is not whether it is right or wrong, this is just how I saw it, I found that scene very difficult to watch. But it was also A violent reminder that just as I, as a viewer, had settled down to a simplified version of Damon, as a loving husband, as a loving brother, an interested stepfather, an okay dad, and an unreckless fellow, the showrunners have never gone that route themselves. They have, as I mentioned in an earlier review, insisted on bearing out the complexities of each character. And Daemon reacting as violently as he did towards Rhaenyra only mirrors how he has always reacted violently when Viserys talked about peace and talked about prophecies and talked about dreams, talked about things that Daemon could not control. This scene with Rhaenyra mirrored in a way The scene in The Stepstones, where Damon beat the crap out of his brother's messenger, who delivered an offer of help, of explanations, of things that Damon would then not be able to control. Damon did not like that. The shock value of suddenly seeing a return of Damon's violent, reckless behavior was, in my opinion, greatly helped then, by not having seen him for a whole episode. Likewise, the shock of seeing Amon cause the death of his nephew was amplified by the viewer perhaps having contemplated him as a better choice for king than his brother Amon. Only a short while ago, it has only been one episode. But now, once again, we are reminded of Amon's relentless nature. So for these two character studies, the exclusively green episode and now the exclusively black episode, the separation work very effectively. The disadvantage of separating the story into two episodes is, and this is again in my opinion, that some threads grow old far too quickly and cannot be afforded the same amount of time twice. Case in point, the reaction to Viserys' death by Damon and Rhaenyra. We had already seen one quiet moment in which Alicent cried over the body of Viserys, meaning that from a storytelling point of view, the showrunners could hardly repeat a quiet scene in which Rhaenyra cries. That concept had already been done, so her reaction must needs be another one, more dramatic, more profound. And her reaction then became the miscarriage, which is an awful experience in itself, but here it was used to show how much Viserys' death, or rather, how much the usurpation of the throne affected her, and then of course her subsequent strength. We see her grieve after the miscarriage, but it is not for Viserys specifically, who arguably was one of the most important people in her life. But I am not saying they should have made other choices, but simply pointing that something is gained by making this choice, while other things are, by necessity, reduced or eliminated by making said choice. And each viewer's tolerance may vary. I might have liked to have seen a scene in which Rhaenyra and Damon actually grieved for Viserys, but others probably were satisfied with what they got. All in all... I will reiterate that I have really enjoyed the showrunner's insistence on complexity, something that is ingrained in the books and has been maintained artistically and solidly in this show. The next theme I want to touch on is viewers and doers. One of the interesting things to follow in this show has been the progression of the roles that characters have ascribed to themselves as opposed to those they are given by circumstance or given to them, forced on them even sometimes, by others. In the very first scene in episode one, we meet Renice, who wishes to become the ultimate doer. She wishes to be queen. This is denied her, and she spent the rest of the season being superficially then a viewer. She was the one who looked on as Reneira progressed from princess to heir. She was a viewer as Viserys married not her daughter, but Alicent Hightower. And then she became a doer in the last few episodes. She escaped King's Landing. She spared the new king. This was an active choice on her part. Though in true Targaryen fashion, she spared the king and Alicent, but she didn't think twice about taking the lives of all those commoners standing on top of the dragon pit as she made her dramatic entrance and exit. But I digress. Rhaenys was a viewer to Aegon's crowning. And in this episode, she was a viewer to Rhaenyra's crowning though noticeably she never bent the knee to Rhaenyra. Circumstances have cast Renice in a viewer's role, though I think her as one of the most intelligent doers. What is true in the world of Westeros, decisions are frequently not for the individual to make. Aegon wishes to enjoy the fruits of privilege without caring for the duty that privilege also entails. He stands in contrast to Luke, who fears that he might not live up to the duty privilege affords, but none of them will be allowed to make their own choices, none of them will be allowed to simply be viewers, and a civil war will inevitably disturb the ground under privilege. So that, in my mind, will make Egon an interesting character to follow, for what will happen to him when privilege is no longer there to be had when privilege is no longer his to enjoy. Daemon derives enjoyment from the privilege of being able to beat the crap out of his enemies and his friends too sometimes. And that privilege he will get to enjoy a great deal in the fights to come. But I wonder, because in this show we have only seen him be truly loyal to Rhaenyra and Viserys. And that sometimes takes a lot of effort out of him. And what about Larry Strong, who uses his privilege of being able to sit back and let others fear him? What will happen to him when there are fears let out into the world that are far greater and far more ominous than him? It is this compelling molding of the show's characters that really grips me. There is an argument to be made that this first season has been about any of these characters. I have heard arguments of how this season was the season of Alicent, or it was the season of Larys, or the season of Damon coming into his own. We have seen them all pivot from a position as a viewer to being doers, or being forced to do. You can, as a viewer, easily follow the thread of life for each and every one of these and find a well-defined arc. This show really did time jumps exceedingly well. I know I have mentioned previously my nitpick about the surprising representation of age on the show. But on the whole, they succeeded in making the viewers take to heart new actors in their new situations. And I particularly loved that time jumps were not ushered in by episodes of exposition. You just had to, as Leonor did in episode 6, trot along and figure it out as it happened. I liked that because it was fun, but I do respect that there were others who found that quite chaotic. I do think, though, that exposition and foreshadowing was a tad less subtle in these latter episodes. The exposition around the painted table in this last episode really required that you knew the people and the geography beforehand. If you had seen and really kept in touch with all your information from the Game of Thrones series, you might have known them. Otherwise, I might imagine you might have been a little bit lost. The foreshadowing of Luke's demise, though, that was about as telegraphed as anything could be. From him having the opening scene, from Damon shouting that he would rather feed his sons to a dragon than have them be cupbearers, to Luke sharing another tender moment with his mother. It was all in the cards. There were, of course, characters who were quite short-lived. Some might call them a little too short-lived who would have been interesting to follow. I have already revealed my affection for Harwin Strong, and one of my friends has told me that evidently I am not the only one. There seems to be a social media delegation centered just around him. (laughs) But I also liked Rhea Royce, Damon's much-maligned, short-lived wife, who seemed to have no fear of life and no fear of Damon, but was there only for an opening scene. My favourite character, and this will come as no surprise to anyone, has been Renice. In many other shows, she would have been that older, bitter woman who was trying a little too hard to compete with the young uns. But here, she was made interesting, and even better, she was made unpredictable. I also very much enjoy the Lannister twins. It re- it just amuses me how they are sort of fumbling about, climbing that ladder of chaos, and just about being tolerated. Considering how, in two hundred years' time, they will have their foot firmly in the holes of power. <laughs> This first season has been a careful setup for the Civil War, which will be fought by the two factions of House Targaryen, and which in the books comes to be called the Dance of the Dragons. It is fitting, I suppose, that the conclusion of this first season features the first of these aerial fights between Luke and Aemon, the start of the war and death of peace. As many have already heard, and book readers already know, the civil war described in the book Fire and Blood is less reliant on misunderstandings, mistakes, and chance, and comes about primarily because of the individual ambitions of Rhaenyra, of Alicent, of Otto, of Aegon, etc. I pass no judgment on whether that is better or not, I would certainly laud the series for making Rhaenyra and Alicent close childhood friends. They don't know each other like that in the books. But it has raised the stakes considerably and cemented the emotional turmoil to great effect. On the other hand, it is possible to create a compelling story with people's ambitions fighting it out during the war. In Game of Thrones, Ned Stark's ambition was for justice and right to prevail, and he fought with that against Cersei, whose ambition was to gain power, the kind of power she thought she needed to survive. As she said, To rule is to lie on a bed of weeds, ripping them out by the root, one by one, before they strangle you in your sleep. Those were two different paths of ambition, but still endlessly engaging in Game of Thrones. In House of the Dragon, the path is filled with people tumbling headfirst into war rather than marching on foot into battles. It is a different perspective, requiring the use of chance just a little bit more. Egon had to be at Storm's End at that moment for the encounter with Luke to happen. Alison had to be at Viserys' side for her to overhear his last words, despite the fact that we saw him often alone and that he died alone. So, House of the Dragon is, in many ways, a game of prepared chance, and ultimately, chance is a very good plot device because it mirrors so many real-life instances where conflict has come from mistakes, misunderstandings, and chance. For example, yes, there was a conspiracy to kill Archduke Ferdinand, as he travelled around the streets of Serbia in 1917. But it was a whole series of coincidences, with a wrong turn down a narrow road, a nice cheap sandwich, yes, that is part of it, and two shots fired, which both happened to be fatal, which then, a few weeks later, had half the world tumbling into the Great War, or the First World War, as we call it. So I do think this show has used chance as a great plot device. There have been other themes, though, or scenes, which I have wondered about. There have been, and definitely should continue to be, a healthy discussion about the display of violence and disturbing scenes. I do like grim stories, but I will like there to be a continued dialogue about the scenes like the birthing scenes political machinations have been at the fore. To my great enjoyment, that political intrigue is superbly constructed and beautifully interwoven. I do sometimes wonder, though, whether the lesser spotlight on the magical elements is done on purpose. The dragon scene in this last episode was spectacular, but we don't often hear people talking about magic. (laughs) My favorite part of the show is the exploration of how one person's pursuit of their goals gets swallowed up and mingles into the wider machinations of the world and carries with it repercussions that resonate both centuries back and centuries forward. Case in point, Amond pursuing Luke because of his own selfish, relentless goal of getting an eye for an eye. When Luke dies, Aymond has not got his eye, but he realizes that his own selfish pursuit will now start a war that will have wider repercussions than his own bullying of his nephew. Like last time, I have some rambling thoughts which I really want to cover. So, number one, many things are mirrored in this last episode from previous episodes. Episode one ended with Rhaenyra looking at the camera after having been named heir. This time, Rhaenyra looks at the camera after being told of Luke's death, and we all can see that that now means war, as the Spanish proverb goes. Get what you want and pay for it. And by the way, that page from the history book that Otto gives Rhaenyra, that page was the same page that she, in episode one, ripped out of the book that she and Alison were reading. So Alison kept that page all this time. There are other things that mirror here. Rhaenyra says that their dragons have never been to war. She says that as they're standing around the painted table. This mirrors Rhaenita's comments in episode 1 about the young jousting lads who have never seen battle. Another mirror is that Rhaenyra is married by old Targaryen traditions, yet she asks her children to swear not to do violence, and they are made to swear by the new gods. Conversely, Alicent has embraced the new gods, but her children, her daughter and her son, Are married as per Targaryen tradition, and her son is crowned with the regalia of Aegon the Conqueror. It seems in Westeros you bet your hedges on all the gods available. Renira's vision of a dragon as she miscarries harkens back to her mother's words when she commented that if childbirth had to be so difficult, she might as well produce a dragon next time. In the books, Rhaenyra's baby is born with deformities, scale-like skin and a dragon's tail. So that vision of a dragon as she was miscarrying could have been a subtle nod to the books. But interestingly, the vision is of a golden-scaled dragon, which is how Rhaenyra's dragon looks. So it could possibly also have been alluding to the bond between her and her dragon, as she screams and the dragon feels it. 3. Viserys' dream came true. His son is really now sitting on the Iron Throne, wearing the Conqueror's crown. But do prophecies actually come true? Because it wasn't this Aegon that Viserys was talking about. It's going to be interesting to see how the show further uses prophecies. Aegon the Conqueror's prophecy about A Song of Ice and Fire didn't explicitly say that a Targaryen had to be ruling at the time of the Long Night, only that a Targaryen must rule for the Long Night to eventually be prevented. So has the prophecy already come true, or will it come true, in the upcoming TV series about Jon Snow, which is scheduled to appear in the next few years? Number four. I wondered at that look Daemon cast on the crown of Viserys before he reverently placed it on the head of Rhaenyra. The last time Daemon touched that crown, it was to put it on the head of his brother in that magnificent scene where we all cried, where he helped him onto the throne. It is, as Luke commented, for that crown to now be in his hands, another had to die. I do wonder, though, as Damon looked at the sigil of the three dragons of the Targaryens, was he at that moment seeing himself wearing that crown, longing for it, even for the briefest of moments? 5. I hope we see more of the painted table. That underlit detail was beautiful. 6. I look forward to getting to know the younger girls more. We know a great deal about Egon, Luke, may you rest in peace, Jake and Aemond, but not so much light has been shone on Bela and Raina, the daughters of Damon and his late wife Leena. It was a powerful moment as Rhaenyra invited both of them to stand beside her at the painted table, but what will the future be for these two daughters? They too have fire and blood in them they too have an inheritance that will be important in the wars to come. They too, at least one of them, is a dragon rider. By the way, some people thought it a great insult that Rhaenyra's sons were offered positions as cupbearers. But in medieval Europe, such a position was one of prestige. It afforded the cupbearer an opportunity to learn from a king or a high lord. And some kings then tested the cupbearers, deliberately telling a story or telling a secret in their council and then waiting a while to see if this secret became known abroad. If it didn't, the cupbearer had proved themselves trustworthy and would perhaps become part of the inner circle of the king. Incidentally, the position of cupbearer was offered to Renera's son Aegon, so that would have been Aegon to Aegon. Number 7. Hightide, the Great Hall of Driftmark, is one place I would spend an hour, preferably a whole day, happily exploring. It is filled with the artifacts of Corlys Velaryon's seven trips around the world, the trips that ensured the Velaryon wealth and made them the wealthiest at this time in Westeros. The attention to detail in that hall is absolutely incredible. 8. Rhaenyra said she had no desire to rule over a kingdom of ash and bone. This mirrors a comment from Daenerys in the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones, and stands in contrast to a comment that Varys made about Littlefinger, when he said that Littlefinger would burn the world to be king of the ashes. I wonder if this is going to apply to anyone in the future. Perhaps Larry Strong or others yet to come. For there are many, many characters to look forward to in the future. I'm going to conclude my ramblings now. The conversation around House of the Dragon has been as rich and as entertaining as conversations were around the first seasons of Game of Thrones, and it has been such a great thing to talk about again. I hoped you liked this episode a little longer than mine usually are. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.